From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison, I'm Emily Tomlin. And I'm Michael Mikowski. I'm not trying to turn students into political scientists. I'm trying to turn them into intelligent consumers. And this meant that I could both join an extraordinary political science department filled with exceptional scholars. One of the most gratifying things is to have students come up at the end of a class and say, I used to think politics was boring. This, 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 this is 1050 Bascom. Today on the podcast, we're really excited to have Professor Edward Freeman in the studio with us. Professor Edward Freeman is a professor emeritus in the Department of Political Science at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is an expert on Chinese politics, U.S.-Asian relations, international political economy, post-communism, and revolution. He has worked in rural China, co-authoring Chinese Village, Socialist State, and Revolution, Resistance and Reform in Village China, and served as the major editor condensing and reorganizing Yang Jishang's great study of the Leap Era Famine Tombstone, the Great Chinese Famine, 1958 to 1962, for an English reading public. He also studies Chinese foreign policy, having done work for the United States government off and on starting in 1965. We're really excited to have you in the studio today. Thank you so much for uh, willing to come on and talk about all your research and everything. Thanks so My much. My pleasure, totally. So maybe we just want to start off with some warm-up questions. Where'd you grow up? What was Ed Friedman in high school? Were you brainy, athletic? What were your interests? I grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I played baseball, basketball, football, and ping pong. I didn't know that grades had anything to do with going to college. (laughs) When I was in high school, my father had to leave school in third grade to Hmm. get a job to support the family. Wow. Um... I was in school. Okay. Yeah. Um, where'd you go to college, uh, grad school? I went to uh, undergraduate at Brandeis University in Waltham, Massachusetts. Um, I went there as uh, someone who had just won a national math contest. Um, I switched to political science in my junior year. And in uh, the end of my s- junior year, I had a rule that I took no courses that began afternoon. <laughs> Afternoons belonged to me, being my view. <laughs> the only course that fit my schedule of no courses afternoon was a Chinese politics course. Hmm. And that's um. how I took Chinese politics. <laughs> and then I went to graduate school at Harvard. So you, so you came into college first with math. Math was your primary interest. Uh, no, I thought I was going to do, I did math, but I thought I was going to do uh, biochemistry and become a medical researcher. Okay. But I was a disaster in the <laughs> laboratory, and so I learned that I was really not going to be a researcher. What was this, uh, the Chinese class you were in, the Chinese politics course? Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I remember very little about it, other than the teacher was enthusiastic, <laughs> and uh, the enthusiasm carried over. I can't remember a single thing I learned in the class. Well, you must have... Uh... Must have been good enough to stick with it. So um, moving beyond. No, I, I, the reason I stuck with it, let's be honest here, Okay. is in 1957, the Soviets put up a Sputnik, a satellite to mm-hmm. run around the Earth. And the U.S. government got scared. And they decided they had to spend money, the U.S. government, studying uh, enemy places. Hmm. And so they passed something called the National Defense Foreign Languages Act, which gave you a lot of grant money if you would study potentially threatening places. One of those places was China. 
and it was very important for me, coming from a not rich family, um, to uh, be able to be financially independent. And so if I studied the Chinese language, I would get a big enough scholarship that I could be financially independent and not have to ask anybody else for money. So the combination of the course in my junior year and the National Defense Foreign Language Act of 57, I'm, I enter college from 55, graduate in 59, um, essentially set my path. It wasn't that I made some intelligent, knowledgeable decision. So practical reasons you started studying China. Uh, I don't even want to call them practical reasons. I, I tend to think it really doesn't matter why you get into something. It's why you stick with something. And that all topics, jobs, works are inherently interesting if you're interested in the topic. Um, hmm. So it's all about you. It's really not about the it. So why did you stick with China? I don't know if I know the answer to that question. I mean, once you're able to swim and you swim well, you keep swimming. And it's simply what I what I did. I think that, as I said, whatever you do, you can neurotically fall in love with it. And so that happened to be what I neurotically uh, fell in love with. But it's not because there's anything intrinsically special about it. So then how was your like journey of learning Chinese? And did like actually knowing the language make it easier, or, like make you want to study like politics in China? even more? That's a wonderful question. So it turned out that learning the language in the classroom was a disaster for me. <laughs> um, I could learn to do well on the exams, but I really couldn't retain anything, and I really couldn't speak it. I, I think I was pretty awful. Hmm. Uh, but then uh, for my dissertation, I had to go to uh, archives that were on the island of Taiwan, and I lived in dormitories at Taiwan University with three local speakers, and I gradually became essentially a local speaker wow. of, uh, of the language from that. And there really is no substitute for learning a language to living in the culture with real people who you have relations with every single day. And I mean, when I arrived, I could have said China is a totalitarian dictatorship, but I could not have said tie your shoelaces. <laughs> what was your dissertation on exactly? The dissertation, China had a revolution in 1911 which overthrew the Ancien Regime, the old monarchy. Uh, China, as almost all countries in the world, was for the longest time ruled by a divine <coughs> monarchy. And it was finally overthrown in 1911 and a republic was established and they held nationwide parliamentary elections in 1912-1913. And then militarists assassinated the prime minister-to-be. And it was the beginning of the end of the democracy in 1911-1912-1913. Uh, and I was interested in trying to understand why the democracy failed. The uh, title of the dissertation was called The Center Cannot Hold, hmm. and I tried to figure out why the center could not hold. Great. So you finished your dis dissertation, do that work in Taiwan. What was the next step for you? Getting a job. Um, so I uh, went back uh, to Harvard, and we had to get a, a job. So this was 1967-8, uh, uh, actually 68. I get back February 68. 
And uh, the American economy at that time is a booming economy. The dollar is uh, very, very uh, strong. And jobs were easy to get. Mm -hmm. uh, you could be 10 times smarter than I was back then. It would be 10 times harder for you to get a good job. Today, the economy just isn't in the same expansive mode that it was. So I had potential job offers from uh, Harvard, Michigan, Stanford, and Wisconsin. And I chose to come to Wisconsin. Wow. Before we maybe get into some more research-based questions, I'm just curious if you're able to tell us a little bit more about the work you did for the government. You said you come together as a team, work on something. Is this like diplomacy specific or is this research for the government? Um, be specific. So when um, I begin to work for the Foreign Affairs Committee as a China person, uh, you didn't just work on uh, China and included Taiwan at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, Taiwan was a military dictatorship. And uh, it, I had been a graduate student on uh, Taiwan, as I said. And so I had some deeper knowledge of and a personal knowledge of, of Taiwan than other places. And I knew other people who did. And uh, we became part, I became part of a group of uh, a called Gang of Four, actually, hmm. uh, two congressmen, two senators, who were totally committed to working together to end the dictatorship in Taiwan, to back the democratic forces in Taiwan, and to help Taiwan democratize. And we would hold hearings and pass legislation and uh, organize uh, op-ed pieces and organize uh, visits to the places and conversations with leaders and lots of things with this end purpose in mind. So it wasn't just a one-shot thing of doing something. There was a long-term team activity with many people doing uh, many things over a period of time. And in 1988, Taiwan democratized, and it was mm. very satisfying. I mean, obviously, it mostly democratizes because of what the people on Taiwan did, not because of what we did. But uh, even at the margin, it, it felt very good to be contributing as part of that larger team effort. Definitely. We want to focus a little bit more on your research with China. Let's say this is day one of a Chinese politics course. How would you explain China as a political entity in the global international world today? So that's the question which we could spend the rest of our life <laughs> trying <laughs> that's sure. to true. answer. And you would find very quickly um, that if you had three experts in, you'd get four different opinions. Uh. <laughs> and so I'm going to answer your question. But it, it's, um, there really is no consensus in the field professionally on how you should answer that question. And there's a, a deep feeling that China's future is uncertain. Okay. Uh, we may live in an era of radical uncertainty. China's future is very uh, uncertain. So what kind of a political system is it? Well, for me, first of all, there are, I divide political systems into democratic and authoritarian. And China is definitely an authoritarian system. And then the question is, what kind of an authoritarian system is it? And you get tremendous debates in answers to that question. There's no doubt that the political party, it's a single-party dictatorship, is a Stalinist party. It's the same party system that was created by Lenin and Stalin after the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia from uh, 1917 to uh, 22, they simply imitated it, and China has that political system. But economically, it is nothing like that. 
economically, it essentially, after the death of Mao, it has copied the successful East Asian development states um, initiated first by Japan in the late 19th century. And so they become a world leader in exports. They are the world leader in, um, in exports. Something would be impossible in a straightforward command economy that goes with a uh, Leninist system. And they have been extraordinarily successful. The rise of China is now the second uh, largest economy on the planet Earth. I think a majority of specialists, not necessarily me, uh, but a majority of specialists would think it inevitable that China will become the largest economy on the uh, planet Earth and, and in very, very soon. So um, it is this uh, contradiction that some people feel, what, or it's more complex than what you think of as a Communist Party dictatorship, because it can deliver economically to the people. Life is growing, the middle class is growing, people travel more. Uh, the country is a world leader in using information uh, technology. America's government is afraid of that China will become a world leader in many IT forms of uh, the uh, next uh, generation. Um, and no country has uh, raised more people out of poverty in a short period of time than China. So the problem is how you put those two things together this really repressive, horrible political system and this extraordinarily dynamic, successful economic system and what you think it means for the future. And since we've never seen such a combination anywhere previously on the planet Earth, no one really knows, no one has any guidance. And that's why, as I said, you would get so much disagreement with people as to what it all means for the future. They don't know. We we don't know. No one knows. I think um, in my lifetime, just even over the past like four years, I've seen a lot of change in the way we talk about China in the media, the attention China gets, especially since 2016, the 2016 election. Uh, China gets a lot of talk. And I'm wondering, is this, has there been changes recently in recent years that warrants this kind of new attention that China might be getting? That very insightful point and absolutely correct. So the dominant view going back to um, the 1980s was that if China changed from being this useless command economy where the state dictated you do this, you do that, and the economy and it didn't work and everything stagnated and there's no innovation, um, we all understood that. Mm -hmm. And then when it began to copy essentially the Japanese model and went into uh, exports and became more market-oriented in what it was doing, um, the view grew that these two things, the repressive party system and the dynamic economic system, could not survive together. And the dominant view in most of the democratic world was that the economics would win out mm -hmm. and that gradually, inevitably, China would liberalize. Yeah. Whether it would fully democratize, it certainly would not become more repressive, it would become ever less repressive, it would become more open. And you can see some of the aspects sitting here on the Madison campus. Uh, Chinese travel, Chinese go to school abroad, Chinese can get on the internet if they're in Madison, Wisconsin, and read anything they uh, want to read. So it seemed that 
the openness was inevitable and was going to win. Starting around 2012 or so, so a little earlier than you said, mm -hmm. um, the view begins to grow that that's not happening. That in fact, China is becoming more repressive, mm -hmm. not less repressive. Not only more repressive, but horribly more repressive. I mean, there is a genocide going on yeah. in China right now. Turkish-speaking Uyghur m Muslims are having their community absolutely wiped out. Um, so monstrous things are happening in the political system in China. And so, just as you were saying, there grew a great change in how uh, people living in democracies, not just in the United States, it'll go all the way Australia, New Zealand, and wherever you want, in the democracies of the world, they began to become cognizant of their assumptions of inevitable liberalization were wrong. Mm -hmm. And so that opens up a debate just as you said, so there's more attention. What then should you do if you were wrong about what you thought was inevitable and you see these nasty trends occurring politically and the mm -hmm. economy remains dynamic? Yeah. Um, and uh, what does it mean for the future and what does it mean for your foreign policy? And so th just as you said, there really has been a great debate and China has been more central to our political debate in the last few years. So do you sense that that theory that democratization will precede liberalization, like in a political sense, is that been debunked by China? Or there, is there still that discussion happening in academia? Is there still a belief that maybe in a couple years, maybe with the situation in Hong Kong, eventually some sort of liberalization will occur? So as I said earlier, all positions are now represented. There's great uncertainty about the future. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely can tell you places where you find people who will still say okay. it'll just take a little bit longer, but China is going to democratize. But by now, you'll find many poor people who, who will say it looks like it's retur returning to the worst kind of totalitarianism. Mm -hmm. But with the uh, uncertainty that exists, uh, all, all positions exist sure. in the debate on, uh, on uh, China. Um, have someone else up and they'll give you a different answer than I will. Mm -hmm. If you had to give an answer, what would you say? I am um, very sad about the direction in which China is going. I really, really see horrible things in the future, really horrible things in the future. Mm. The regime is increasingly... Uh, racist, it is uh, chauvinist, it is cruel, it is ambitious, it is expansionist, it's, uh, I think it's going to, I, I just fear all sorts of worse things. I hope I am wrong. No one should ever want to be right about such a forecast of, uh, of uh, the future, but all the signs to me um, look very, very negative. Hmm. So I kind of want to backtrack and look maybe at some of your research. And you've worked in rural China. You've done research there. Um, can you tell us a little bit about maybe the exact kind of work you did when you were in China? So in 1978, April, um, after Mao had died and a gentleman named Deng Xiaoping had succeeded to be the uh, supreme leader of, uh, of China, he concluded that for China to catch up, to stop being backward, to be modern, to become one of the advanced, to hope become a world leader, 
the only way to do it was to open up to the world. Mm -hmm. And it was very important for them to send people abroad to learn knowledge and to come back and bring the most advanced knowledge to China. And if they were going to do that, they concluded they were going to have to welcome international visitors to come study in China. They weren't going to get away with doing that without reciprocating. And so they decided to do a first tryout, a test, to see if they could control international visitors coming. By the way, no Chinese would ever say international visitors. They would always say foreigners. No international visitor. Um, uh, that they could handle international visitors so they would learn nothing that Ch the Chinese Communist Party state did not want them to learn. And for reasons too long to explain here, I became part of that first group of four that was invited to China to see if they could control what we learned. And we went to the countryside. Uh, we negotiated about where we would go. Uh, we had our desires. They had their desires. At the end of our first two months, four people, each working 16-hour days, um, never taking a day off. You can calculate <laughs> how much time uh, that is. It's like a, it's like a year, more than a year of, uh, of uh, continuous uh, work. Um, we then found out that there was a place in Hong Kong which clipped journals from China and organized them by county. And we went to read their county clippings from the establishment of the People's Republic of China, October 1st, 1949, to the date that uh, we left uh, China, which was the um, end of June 1978 at that time. And we learned two things. All the stories we had told, we were told, we could have read in the newspaper, <laughs> um, that th one of the reasons this place was picked because it learned how to, it knew how to tell the official story the way the party wanted the official story told. And while we were thrilled with all we learned and thought we had a great book, it was obvious on reading these county files that 95% of what we had learned was Communist Party hype. Mm. And we were totally taken in. And we didn't like it. <laughs> so we decided to go back. And we went back over the next 25 years, multiple times a year, and eventually got a real material and um, published two books on the village, both of which were translated into uh, Chinese um, by the uh, Chinese government. Um, and uh, were no longer the people who you could talk to and fool as much as they yeah. did on that first visit to uh, to China. It was, it was a wonderful experience. You came to care about people. You came to know people. I attended weddings. I attended funerals. I visited people in the hospital after operations. Um, I uh, watched people go off to a college. Um, it stopped being, in a sense, a research experience alone because if you keep going back that time, that many times, people become people. Mm -hmm. And I hate to tell you this for me, people are all are pretty much the same everywhere. They're, they're, human, they're human beings. And uh, uh, even though culture exists, you know, one guy prefers coffee and the other one prefers tea and <laughs> one uses chopsticks and the other uses a fork and knife. And 
um, and so on. Um, it, we're still all human beings, and you really come. I think that was a, a wonderful learning experience and a caring experience. You come to really care about the people. They aren't just you know a place where you're doing research. They're human beings, same as you. It sounds like sort of almost like a project of like ethnography, like you kept Correct. repeating the same village and Correct. getting to know these people. Correct. Did you come out of that with a thesis? What was that? Could you just give a brief sure. description of what that book concluded? Uh, the book didn't conclude anything. Okay. <laughs> um, the book's view was to look at the village from the first day a communist party cadre came into the village okay. and asked what changes were going to occur as a result of communism coming into the village and how the village was going to respond to it. The goal was not to say what we thought about anything. We all had different politics. We tried to say what we thought about anything. We never would have agreed about anything. So we tried to capture the lived experience hmm. of the people themselves. We thought that telling the story as we thought local people came to learn it and live it was our job and that was quite enough to do so we didn't have a political view in that sense yeah. at all just truth telling in a way it was verisimilitude it was try mm -hmm. to capture without saying that reality was what they experienced it was what they experienced if um if they thought mao was god we would describe how they thought mao was god we didn't have a sentence that said mao was not god yeah um, so maybe we focus a little bit more on current events that are happening in China now. I know you mentioned that the Uyghur Muslims, they were undergoing like a genocide almost, or that is what's happening. Maybe happening. would you want to explain a little bit more about that? So if you think about society in general, any place in the world, you're immediately aware of diversity. Not everybody is the same and different societies will divide up their society in uh, different kinds of ways. And as you know, different societies will treat different groups of people in different kinds of ways. It's possible to have a Ku Klux Klan. Even in a uh, democracy, people do not always treat everybody um, the best way. We can all think of horrible instances ongoing in our own uh, society. Um, the present ruling group in China looked at the end of the Soviet Union in August 1991. And they came to the conclusion that this implosion of the Soviet Union into 16 independent republics, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and so on, Georgia, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, what have you, um, that the main or a main cause of it was religious ethnicities. And they've come to the conclusion that if China's going to be a world power, which they intend China to be, it must hold together. And the only way to hold together is to destroy this diversity and make everybody one. And so they are in the process of, to use the gentle term in Chinese, would be Hanhua, who we call in English, sinifying everybody. Mm. They're essentially going to destroy all other community identities. So there'll never be, the dominant group is called Han. There'll never be any Han splitism as they see it in China. And they're very serious about this. 
and they intend literally to wipe out the identity basis of all communities. So talking about Uyghur Muslims, they're destroying the mosques, they're not letting people grow beards, they're stopping people from veiling, they're stopping education in their own script, they're stopping learning about their own history, they're stopping parents from being able to bring up their children in their own culture, they're promoting uh, people marrying out of Uyghurs into Han groups, so is they're going to really wipe out Hans. There are stories, you could argue whether these are verified or not, um, I take them seriously, where women are given injection, injections to make them sterile. Um, there are over a million people in uh, concentration camps being, what should we say, de-educated from being uh, Turkish-speaking Uyghur Muslims so that they should know how great it is to be a Han and they should want to be a Han, and this is what is happening in China. So you said this began, this was when they kind of looked at the Soviet Union falling apart, they saw how that played out. That's when they decided to pursue this policy of sinification, I think was the term you used. Has this been happening since the 90s, like since that dissolution happened, or is this... Are we just now, is Western media now just looking at it? So first there's a debate. Mm-hmm. The event occurs, and they want to know what the event means. Why did it occur, the implosion of the Soviet Union? And then they want to try to figure out what are the lessons for us, and then they have to begin to act on the lessons. So I would say the putting together of the whole thing in a way in which they were really serious about cynicizing uh, everybody, homogenizing mm-hmm. everybody, doing away with these ethnic communities, it really doesn't get going till around 2012. Mm. Um, so as someone who's also done a little bit of work looking at U.S.-China relations, another thing, like I said, mentioned before, since 2016 has been given a lot of attention. I'm curious, what's your take sort of on... The tariff war, where do you see this happening? Are the, is this an unprecedented move in U.S. foreign policy? So as we said before, by around 2012, when opinions changed about whether liberalization was inevitable in China, um, the American government and most democracies began to w- uh, be aware that China was quite a challenge. It was difficult to avoid because it's been taking over territory in maritime Asia and militarizing that territory and American friends and allies, uh, uh, Japan, Taiwan, Singapore, Vietnam, are all begging America for some help against this spreading uh, Chinese threat. And then you had this economic challenge which was uh, rising because it is the fact that uh, the uh, state enterprises in China do not play by the same rules that American firms will play. Even if Hillary Clinton had been elected president, there was going to be a toughening of the economic relationship between the United States and China. Um, The whole point of the Trans-Pacific Partnership negotiated by uh, President Obama was for the countries in the uh, Pacific region to join together with higher standards which would make it difficult to China for China to win by cheating. They'd mm. either have to uh, come into uh, our set of rules or they'd be isolated from the system. But 
given the anti-globalization feelings in the United States, even Hillary Clinton, who basically wrote uh, the Trans-Pacific <laughs> Partnership, came out against it as a, uh, as a bad deal. So I think it was almost a given before Trump was elected that A, there was gonna be some kind of economic clash, some kind of economic clash was needed, and probably it was not gonna be a totally rational one given that you couldn't even embrace TPP, which was a good thing mm -hmm. to uh, have embraced. Um, and then President Trump really went crazy in terms <laughs> of what you would want to do. What you would want to do is you get together with your allies and partners, all of whom were suffering from the same kind of Chinese cheating, and you essentially say, we're not gonna go along unless you stop X, Y, and Z, stealing intellectual uh, property, making we have to turn over technology if we want to do business in uh, China. But Donald Trump, two things. One is, for reasons which are a mystery, uh, is fixated on the size of the trade deficit. I mean, if we stop buying something that's cheap from China, that does not change the trade deficit. The big winner from that is Vietnam. It all goes hmm. into uh, Vietnam. So it's hard to understand what Donald Trump is doing that's going to improve the uh, American economy because um, he abandoned his allies. He didn't focus on the intellectual property and the technology uh, transfers. And so you, have the question suggests we have a tariff war. The tariff war is definitely not good for China and it's definitely not good for the United States. And Trump is probably right that it's worse for China because um, they sell more um, than it is for the United States. But it's not a tax on China. It's a tax the consumer pays in the higher prices of goods that come in uh, from uh, China. And it's therefore hurting Mr. Trump with farmers and he's afraid of the election. And so the Chinese position essentially is um, that if they hold strong, which is what they've been doing, at a certain point concerned about his electoral chances in 2020, Mr. Trump will make concessions. It'll be a phony deal, which he'll call a victory, uh, but it won't be. Um, but it'll stop that from hurting the economy. And we will still have left over the issues of the technology uh, transfer and the theft of uh, intellectual property. So um, we don't know for sure that this, what I just said is going to happen because while that's Donald Trump, he's also surrounded by people who understand the economy of it, who it's not easy to tell him that we shouldn't sell out or whatever. So it's Hard to know who is going to win. I bet on Trump myself. Um, but you do have a difficult situation because he went at uh, complex relations with China, which definitely needed changing in a way which wasn't going to do any good, a tariff war, rather than taking on the issue of technology transfer and intellectual property theft. I would feel bad if we sat down with an expert on China and we didn't talk about Hong Kong, just given how much it's in the news lately. Um, 
So I think maybe it'd be good if we got into a conversation about that. A lot of students have expressed interest in understanding this issue a little more as it enters the news. Um, so maybe a good place to start is just saying what what is Hong Kong, if you could just give us a description of. So Hong Kong um, is on the southeast coast of, uh, of uh, China. It really comes in two parts. Uh, the new territories in the Kowloon Peninsula, which are a part of the Chinese mainland, and then a number of islands. Uh, Hong Kong is an island, mm -hmm. and uh, Lantau is another island on which is the international airport. And basically, um, the British took Hong Kong Island after the Opium War, um, but there were very few Chinese that lived on the island. Uh, they lived on the uh, in Kowloon Peninsula and the uh, New Territories. And then what is today uh, Hong Kong was put together in um, around 1898 with a 99-year lease, which ended in 1997, and Hong Kong was returned. Mm -hmm. uh, all of it, the islands and the uh, parts on the mainland, were returned to the People's Republic of China with a deal which the uh, Chinese Got the People's Republic of China government called One Country, Two Systems, in which Hong Kong, although their foreign policy, their defense policy, was decided in Beijing, their domestic politics could be a different system. They could have due process of law. They could have an independent judiciary. They could have a free press. They could have a, a dynamic civil society. They could organize, organize none of this is possible in the uh, People's Republic. Mm -hmm. And when that was put in place in 1997, most people in Hong Kong were very hopeful that it would work out well. China was a powerful government. It was a powerful economy. Um, it was seen as a backstop. Uh, we had our, uh, our own system and uh, China standing behind us. It would all work out well. And I think most Hong Kong people uh, were willing to learn the language of uh, the national language of uh, of the People's Republic, Putonghua, uh, we call Mandarin. Uh, the major language in Hong Kong is Cantonese, and um, and then things began to happen. Um, the first thing is that uh, it, it wasn't really uh, so free. There was a lot of interferences. There was kidnapping of uh, of booksellers who uh, who sold books that the Communist Party uh, didn't uh, didn't like. Um, there was um, an attempt to force education to love uh, the Communist Party. Um, there was uh, an influx of uh, mainlanders who uh, looked with contempt on uh, Cantonese and got contempt feelings uh, back. There was a buying up of things that you couldn't trust. Uh, mainland production is quite, mm, like in the days of uh, um, no regulations on meat in the United States, and you didn't know what you got. So everything from formula milk to diapers, you would come into Hong Kong and buy out the store. Hmm. Uh, you would come into Hong Kong for an operation because uh, surgery is a corrupt business in China. You got to pay a surgeon under the table, etc. Um, and suddenly, services were disappearing, and Hong Kong uh, Chinese people were buying it up. 
and attitudes in Hong Kong began to change and they began to have a feeling much stronger that we had something special. And we don't, we're losing this something special. And there began a growth of Hong Kong identity. And it was a very anti-Chinese mainland identity because uh, every day you saw these uh, people coming in from the uh, mainland of China. And it was experienced uh, in really kind of vile terms of a, of a mother let a baby defecate on the sidewalk, that would, picture would go viral and that would be all mainlanders or uh, barbarians and savages. Mm. And, and so there became two very conflicting identities. And then the mainland, um, and then uh, a law was introduced in the uh, Hong Kong legislature. The legislature is a rigged legislature. It's uh, not one person, one vote. You vote by economic community. Um, so that uh, making sure that pro-Beijing people have a majority of the votes. And they introduced a law which would have allowed for uh, people accused of crimes in China to be uh, taken into China for their uh, extradi an extradition law. And given everything that happened before, that was terrifying inside of Hong Kong. That was a feeling that our independent judiciary was all gone, that we were all vulnerable the same way that the booksellers were kidnapped and jailed into China. And a mass movement exploded um, coming out of all of these things, but with the straw that breaks the camel's back being the extradition law. And it was, it is, uh, I don't have language to describe it. There are seven million Hong Kong people, two million people could be in the uh, in the streets, mm -hmm. I mean, um, that would be something like seventy million people demonstrating at one time in the United States. It's just extraordinary. And um, eventually, three things have occurred. Um, one was that the police began using thugs and criminal elements and were very violent to the demonstrators. And so instead of one demand and the extradition law, the demands grew. We want the police investigated and punished. We want people charged with rioting to be free. We want an examination of what the heck's going on with the uh, police. And as these demonstrations were day after day and monumental in size, uh, the uh, Hong Kong governor, really appointed by the Beijing government, decided to back off the extradition law, but didn't budge on any of the other demands. And um, they now cared about all these other demands. And among a certain small number, I'd say between five and 25,000 young people grew a feeling that they had no future, that no matter what they did, unless something really drastic changed, uh, life as they knew it was gone. And they became violent. They became violent. Uh, the other uh, 1,975,000 people were against it, but you had five to 25,000 people 
who had this feeling that they might as well die now hmm. since life was not going to be worth living. And that has made uh, some things uh, very, very uh, difficult. There's no way to control this five to 25,000 so far. Maybe if the government made further concessions, but there's no indication of that. And so you have um, this situation of an increasingly violent police thug force and a handful of uh, the protesters, which are violent too. And so attention has been taken away from the desires to preserve what Hong Kong people thought they had, that they were uh, now losing and the sad focus is on the violence. And that sets up a situation where uh, coercive forces loyal to Beijing can at some point crush everything in the name of peace and order. Was there the kind of view before this came to where it is now that do you think there was a lot of hope placed in Hong Kong that Hong Kong could be the chance for that political liberalization to spread into China? So I think when Hong Kong returned to China in 1997, mm -hmm. there were many people who had that view mm -hmm. that uh, Hong Kong's way, at that time China was not yet rich and powerful. Hong Kong was a very large percentage of the exports of uh, China. Um, that it would have a disproportional influence on, uh, on China. But as China kept growing, um, Hong Kong becomes ever less important, and then China keeps uh, uh, interfering in the Hong Kong way of life, so that by today I think virtually nobody would think about the possibility of China being Hong Kongized. Yeah. I've also seen reports in the news of Chinese citizens almost sometimes siding on the or taking the stance of their government absolutely. against Hong Kong. Absolutely. So in that in that regard, do you think is there common is there is it safe to say that there's a consensus that Chinese citizens maybe also support China in this sort of coming to heads against Hong Kong? Oh absolutely, but it's meaningless. It was hmm. the topic we were getting into before is right. there public opinion in China. If you're in China, you're certainly not seeing any pictures of police and thugs beating up the demonstrators. Okay. If you're in China, you certainly haven't heard any interviews of the uh, demonstrators explaining what they want. If you're in China, what you've heard is that it's all a CIA plot and it's all dupes of the Americans who are doing this to uh, undermine and destroy uh, China. And uh, if something isn't done about it, uh, China, too, will fall into violence and chaos. And so your choice is, uh, do you want to stop the Americans from interfering um, and destroying our way of life or not? Well, everybody's in favor of that if you're right. Chinese. But as we said earlier, there's no public opinion. They really don't know enough to have public opinion, but they have very passionate, patriotic fevers on the topic, yes. Thank you so much for coming on to our podcast. We had a great time I talking with you. I had a ball. I thought you were all wonderful. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> Thank so you. much. Thank you.